0: on any given day, my feelings are all over the map. They are all over the map. On Friday, I got into my car to take my middle daughter to high school, as is my custom, Monday through Fridays. I live, by the way, three-quarters of a mile from the high school as the crow flies. This particular Friday, I set a brand new record it took 31 minutes to get from my house all the way to the high school and back. If you can look into the rearview mirror, that's traffic from West Jesmond Middle School all the way over the bypass and beyond. I was getting angry and frustrated. And I was gripping that wheel and I was mumbling. And I was really grumpy, I got to the high school and there's this young officer brand new and clearly it was his first time directing traffic and I was like, I couldn't tell, <laughs> that's sarcasm. And then, and then I get into the high school and Jillian goes, I love you dad, I hope your day gets better. I'm like, it will as soon as I repent. <laughs> and then I get to my office and I've got voicemail And somebody's left a message and I listen to the phone message and it's this person saying max hey I'm just calling to tell you how awesome you are and how fortunate I am to have you in my life click so in the span of 45 minutes I'm angry I'm frustrated I'm grateful I'm satisfied I mean and that's just in the span of 45 minutes there's a couple of things about feelings that I want to let you know one it's very difficult to control your feelings. It's really difficult. Now, I know some of us guys think we can. We're like, oh yes, I am the master of my emotions. And so we stuff them all down inside, but what usually happens is we kinda combine them all into one emotion, and that's anger. That's the one emotion that comes out. <laughs> and then we, you know, anger means we're happy, anger means we're sad, anger means we're angry, it means all kinds of things. So. You know, trying to control them doesn't work because they come upon you with such speed. They do. They just, you know, feelings kind of happen. And then sometimes you don't even know why you're feeling the way you do. You're like, why do I feel this way? Why do I want to cry? Like, what's going on? Okay, so one, it's very difficult to control feelings. Two, you may not realize this, but feelings are often, often, not always, hear me, not always, but often tied to beliefs that we have about ourselves, beliefs that we have about the way the world works, and beliefs about what others think of us or or about others. I've known single people with intense feelings of loneliness and you start to peel away the layers. You know, she's 29 and she's still single and you peel away the layers and there's a truth, there's a belief, nobody will ever love me. I'm I'm always gonna be alone. Um, I've known adults who have felt trapped uh, they, they want to launch this new career. They're doing stuff with it on the side, but they're like, I'm stuck, I'm trapped. And you start peeling things away and you hear the language and you hear the belief. I can't. You know, Max, other people can do those things. I just can't. You don't understand. Um, I've known people who felt insecure on the inside, only on the outside they appeared cocky and prideful and they were always talking themselves up, but you peel away the layers. And on the inside it's this core truth of, I'm not as talented as those other people, they're smarter than me, they're faster than me. And there's insecurity, okay? So two things, it's difficult to control your feelings and feelings are often, not always, often tied to beliefs that we have. Beliefs about ourselves. I'm smart, I'm dumb. I'm pretty, I'm plain. Beliefs about others, oh they, they probably won't like us. I know they invited us over for dinner and everything but trust me hun, they don't like us. Beliefs about the way the world works. I can, I can't. If you wanna have freedom when it comes to your identity, you're gonna have to renew and reprogram some of the thoughts and beliefs that you have that are fueling some of the emotions that you have. John Ortberg has done a very good social study and has mapped out what this looks like using cats and dogs. Don't laugh at social science, it's real. It's not the handmaiden of geology, it's real. So let me talk to you about dogs for a moment. 8 a.m., I get dog food. This is my favorite thing, this is awesome. 9 a.m., I get a car ride, I love car rides. Car rides are awesome, this is my favorite thing. 10 a.m., I'm rubbed and petted. This is my favorite thing. Noon, the kids have friends over and they feed me table scraps. This is my favorite thing. 2 p.m., I get to play ball. I love balls. I want the ball, throw the ball. (laughs) I'm gonna bring the ball. I'm not giving you the ball back, (laughs) okay? It's my favorite thing. 11 p.m., after binge-watching two seasons on Netflix, my owner lets me fall asleep in bed with her. This is my favorite thing. Meanwhile, this is how cats see the world. (laughs) It has been day 983 of my captivity. My captors continue to taunt me with dangling objects. I dream only of escape. I want to suggest to you as we wrap up this series on identity that the way you live your life in a large degree is connected to what you believe and it's a reflection of what you think. We talked last week about this key verse from Proverbs chapter 23. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh, so is he. You are what you think. All right? Now, traditionally in our culture, we tend to root identity, what we believe about ourselves, in one of three areas. We, we tend to root our identity and derive meaning and worth one of three places. What I do. What I do. I'm a doctor. I'm a director. I'm the regional rep. I am the goalie that has successfully kept every single ball from entering the net for six games straight. I am what I do. I I do a lot through the Chamber of Commerce, trust me. After the introduction of their name, it is the very next question. Oh, Max, what do you do? This is what I do, what do you do? And so we do measuring of, of vocation based on what people's answers are to what I do. And then there's what others say about me. And this is pretty powerful. When people say positive things, I walk a little taller, I feel a little better. When people say something negative, I'm crushed. Did you know that studies show that among high-performing employees, the ratio of positive comments to criticisms is six to one? In healthy families, the ratio of positive comments to criticisms is 10 to one? There's some traction to that, and so many people will root their identity in what other people think, and then the third way we tend to root our identity and derive meaning in America is through what we have. If I have a nice house, if I have a stable job, if I've got my health, if I've got a good family situation, then everything's going well and good, but take one of those things away, and I'm depressed and crushed, and so much energy and effort goes into trying to derive meaning and value out of one of these three areas. So much of our lives is spent trying to root our identity there. Henry Nouwen, who was a capable theologian of 50 years ago, he said, your life can be summarized by a line. Here's, Here's my line. It began in 1968. For some of you, you're like, that's ancient history. The start of your line is like 1989 or 1997. Some of you are like, man, I wish it was 1968. Talk about 1943, baby, right? You have a start to your line and you have a line just like I do. I've picked an arbitrary date based on the average life expectancy of a man in America. Here's what I know. I may not make it to that date. I may make it past that date. But all of us have a line. And what Henry Nouwen says is that throughout the duration of that line, we're trying to ask and answer one question. Who am I? Who am I? We waste so much time. Oh, things are going really well. I got a promotion. Oh. I was downsized. I'm nobody. Up and down and up and down. Your life, your line is going to have ups and downs just like mine have. And we could squander the better part of our years if we try and peg our worth and value to when the moments of the roller coaster of ups and downs are simply above the line. Jesus, however, knew better. Jesus I don't know if you know this, but I want to tell you some things about your family that might put Jesus in a little different perspective. Jesus was born to a relatively unknown family. He was the son of a common carpenter. He spent his childhood in Nazareth. The Nazareth, that the disciples were like, can anything good come out of that town? Nazareth, that's like Podunksville. That's Hillbilliesville. That's nowhere. Nobody ever comes from Nazareth. He had no formal education. There was absolutely nothing in his upbringing that would have caused people to say, that boy, that boy's got a future. Boy, that boy, that boy's gonna be a world changer right there. Mark my words, sir. Yes, sir, that boy's got a future. Nothing in his upbringing would have indicated that. And yet when it came time to start his public ministry, he went to be baptized by John the Baptist and I want to share with you what happened right before that baptism and right after. So if you brought a Bible, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter three and four today. The end of Matthew chapter three, the beginning of Matthew chapter four. So when the time came for his public ministry, he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist who was a distant cousin. And after the baptism, this is what the scriptures say. Chapter three, verse 16, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Jesus, this is who you are. You're my beloved son. This identity rooted in God will allow you to live in a world where people will praise you and where people will reject you. This identity rooted in God, Jesus, will allow you to live in a world where people will follow you and where people will spit on you. This identity, you are my beloved son. Well, look at what happens immediately after this. He's taken into the wilderness and he has a showdown, so to speak, with the devil himself. Chapter four, verse one and following. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stones to become loaves of bread. Turn this stone into bread, Jesus, do something. Use your power for your benefit. You're hungry, aren't you? Look at what you can do, Jesus. What does Jesus say to him? No, the scriptures say people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, the devil takes him to Jerusalem, verse five. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he'll order his angels to protect you. They'll hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus, everyone is milling about. The temple is the pinnacle, the high point. Jump off, everyone will see. Everyone will gasp. Don't you wanna create buzz? Don't you wanna have the admiration of the masses? Don't you want everybody to say, you are awesome? Jesus, you are amazing. Jesus, we just wanna be around you. Look at what you can do. What does Jesus say? No, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Well, the devil tries a third time, verses 8 through 11. The devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Bow before me. You won't have to suffer. There won't be a cross. There won't be all this stuff. You can have it all now without sacrifice. Come on. What do you say? What is Jesus' response? Get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And so the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. The devil went away because Jesus knew who he was. He was God's beloved. His identity rooted in God, allowed him to be the most human, the most free, it allowed him to do the unthinkable, it allowed him to love and serve. And it's what we see at the end of his ministry. So this happened at the beginning of his ministry, this temptation, Matthew four. At the end of his ministry, he celebrates Passover with his friends in an upper room. And the way the Jewish road, Roman road system worked is they were mud and dirt and caca and all that stuff mixed up into the road. And when you walked along the road, you got mud and dirt and caca and everything else that was on the road all over your feet, all over your legs. And you would file in and reclining at table meant that you your head was next to somebody's feet. So every person who had hospitality had a Slave girl, a servant girl at the door, somebody at the bottom of what was then the totem pole. And one by one, the disciples file in and there's no servant girl there to wash feet. And look at what happens. And this is John chapter 13. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Look at verse three. What does Jesus know? Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over what? Everything. I am king. He knew he had come from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living together in mutual love and mutual interdependence, and that he would return to that. And that knowledge, that rooted identity, allowed him to do what none of his friends were willing to do. Oh, I'm not gonna do that, that's the job of a slave girl. I'm one of the disciples, I'm one of the three, I'm higher up. He grabs a towel and a basin and he washes feet because he knows who he is. The brilliance I think of Henry Nowen is that what's said of Jesus Christ set of you. Jeremiah 31:3 Long ago the Lord said to Israel I have loved you my people with an everlasting love with an unfailing love I have drawn you to myself. Psalm 139 You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Who am I? Who are you? How do you define your worth and meaning? in your line. Are you gonna draw meaning and significance from what you do, from what others say about you, from what you have? I'm gonna tell you, as you age, as you age, you're able to do less and less. You're not able to do the job that you used to be able to do. You're not able to lift what you were able to lift. You start forgetting things, and before long, your kids are wanting to take away your driver's license. If you put your value and your worth into what you do, it's a dead end. And what about what you have? I found as I hang around people older than me, they start to downsize. Had dinner with some folks that talked about the fact we never ate on our china the whole time and we moved and downsized and now we eat on it every single day. Why? Can't take it with us. Can't take it with us. I want to suggest to you that when you give what you do, when you give what others say, when you give what you have the power to name you, you're giving power over to a tyrant. And I don't want you to do that. You're better off giving the power to name you to Jesus who is the good shepherd. Jesus knows his sheep by name. He goes after strays. He guards against wolves. And he lays down his life for his sheep. Remember from the first week of this series, we said that the biblical metaphor, one of the biblical metaphors is that we are sheep and God is a shepherd. In 2005, outside of Gevis, Turkey, one sheep wandered off a cliff. Bah, bah. 1,500 of his friends followed. Now for those of you that are worried, only 450 of them actually died. Their deaths formed a giant ball of fluff that saved all the others who jumped. (laughs) It's horrible. I wanna suggest to you that in the United States of America, our country is littered with sheep who have jumped off the cliff of performance. Our country, our neighborhoods, our families are filled with sheep who have jumped off the cliff of opinion and gossip. Our culture, our families are filled with sheep who have jumped off the cliff of acquisition and trying to keep up. So how do you do it? How do you begin to see yourself through God's eyes? Here's some practical homework, right? So you're like, okay, I get it, Max. What do I do? How do I run with this? First and foremost, scripture intake. I know you're like, read the Bible? Come on. No, yes, read the Bible. If you don't want to read it, listen to it. They've got this stuff on CDs, on audio. Listen to it when you're doing the stuff that you do. But you gotta have Bible intake. You've gotta have that coming into you on a regular basis. There are no shortcuts for this. There's no substitute for this. How did Jesus respond to the devil? By quoting scripture. The wrong approach is to to take the Bible and go, what's the minimum I can read and not have God mad at me? (laughs) Right approach. What can I read that will feed my mind so that I can really live? The second part of this is meditation, culling and thinking and chewing on what God says in the Bible. David did this as he was tending sheep. My wife does this every morning during the school week. She listens to Joyce Meyer for a little bit. She reads a little bit of scripture because she wants to go off to kindergarten saying, I am a woman of God. God is with me and for me. It doesn't matter what I'm afraid of. It doesn't matter what I'm a nervous wreck about. God is with me and for me. And she wants to have that truth be in her and own it. Let that voice speak to you. All right? Time with God. Um, I'll take a day uh, once a week when the weather's warm. There are lots of ways to experience God in community, here, uh, privately. But it's not just, you know, reading and doing a prayer thing and doing a journal. You know, one size doesn't fit all. But time with God so that God is speaking to you about his love for you, about who he is, and about who you are and whose you are. I will not fear for you are with me. Henry Nouwen says, let that voice speak. Without silence, without solitude, we're gonna remain unconvinced of our worth. And so there's no shortcuts for this, but I promise if you will do these things, you will begin to think and see the way God thinks and sees. Let God tell you who you are. Let the good shepherd name you. Let the good shepherd lead you On January 27th, 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King heard two voices. The first voice came in the form of a telephone call. And I apologize for the language, but I'm simply gonna read what he wrote of that telephone call on January 27th, 1956. The caller said this, listen nigger, we're tired of you. If you ain't out of town in three days, we're gonna blow your brains out and blow up your house. Click. Martin Luther King said that in that moment, he was gripped by fear. He was afraid for his life. He was afraid for his family. People had been pressuring him to get involved in what would be known as the Civil Rights Movement, and he had said, no, uh uh-uh, not gonna do it. I'm not like you. I'm not gonna do it that way. No way, Uh uh-uh. And they kept trying to draft him. Dr. King, you're gifted. I think you have a, no, no. And at that moment, with that threat, he sat at his kitchen table and he fretted. He fretted and he worried and he prayed. God, what am I gonna do? God, I'm scared. God, I, I can't. I just, God, where are you? And that's when he said, he heard a second voice, an inner voice. And again, I wanna read exactly what Dr. King wrote. This voice spoke to him and said this, Martin, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice and truth. I will be with you. I will never leave you. Never, 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 never. I am with you till the end. Sound familiar? Dr. King believed it was the voice of Jesus and he said the fear started to dissipate. Well, three days later, the man who made the phone call delivered on his threat. His house was bombed. His family escaped, and people from all over started to gather outside of his home, and they came with weapons. And they were gonna take the fight to the whites. And in an impromptu sermon, Dr. King stood up and he gave a sermon, and he said to them, no, no, We are commanded to love our enemies. We are commanded to pray for those who persecute us. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. No, my brothers and sisters, we will not win our freedom this way. People who were there that night said that there was crying, people were in tears, there was repentance, and everyone went home. 10 years later, outside of Selma, Americans watched horrified on their televisions, white police officers on horses go after and chase and tear gas and beat black men and women who did not fight back. And people say that was a turning point for the entire civil rights movement. God does not promise that you're gonna be safe. God does not promise that you're gonna be wealthy, that you're gonna be beautiful, that you're gonna be successful. There are preachers in America who will tell you that, but I don't wanna lie to you. But he does promise that he will be with you. And I'm telling you, if you will let the good shepherd name you, if you will let the good shepherd lead you, it leads to freedom, the kind of freedom that Martin Luther King had. He wasn't safe, they killed him a year after Selma but he was free in here. And that freedom in identity changed the world around him and I'm telling you, when you have that kind of secure identity in Jesus, it will change things around you.